Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. Today, we have an amazing founder. We're going to be talking about building and scaling the good stuff that we like to hear. He's done it a few times and, uh, you know, also raised uh, quite a bit of money for both companies and also hired a lot of people. So, again, product market fit, raising money, scaling, I mean, everything that you can think of. I think that the episode today, we're going to find it quite inspiring. So, without further ado, let's welcome our guest today. Ravi Parikh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. So originally born and raised there in Indiana. So how was life growing up? Uh, it was nice. Uh, yeah, I, I grew up here in uh, Indiana in, in the Midwest for, for the first 18 years of my life. Pretty sort of normal uh, American childhood kind of. Uh, uh, definitely pretty different than uh, you know being in Silicon Valley and building tech startups and things like that. Not something that I was exposed to as a kid. Uh, or that I imagine many people were exposed to back in the 90s. But yeah, I was born and raised here. Both my parents are doctors. Both my parents immigrated here from India uh, and, and had a great childhood growing up. Yeah, I was, I was lucky enough that I was growing up in the 90s when the internet was taking off and, and all that kind of stuff and got a little bit of exposure to it and um, spent some time learning to write code and all that kind of stuff when I was a kid, which is what eventually got me into engineering and, and, and into the, to, to the startup scene and all that kind of stuff eventually. But um, was was not aware that that's what it, where it would take me when I was when I was a kid. And computers and music, you know, they definitely played a, a big role. So, at what point do you come across computers and then also music? Yeah, I mean, we were we were lucky enough to have a personal computer in in our house um, when I was five years old. My dad was always um, a really big um, sort of like he, he was into buying like gadgets and 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 like tech uh, tech products and things like that. So we always had like a Mac uh, computer. Uh, in our house starting in the early 90s when I was pretty young. Um, and so um, I always just sort of like played on that as a kid, um, less like playing video games and things like that, and more just like getting into early online forums and stuff and eventually learning to code a little bit on my own, learning how to write some basic HTML and and uh, JavaScript and things like that and making basic websites and stuff back in the 90s. And uh, and so that's kind of what how I got into sort of computers. And then in parallel, as you kind of mentioned, I was I was also a musician. That's something that I've done kind of my whole life as well. Um, and, you know, took piano lessons and stuff like that as a kid. But when I was in high school, you know, started in, in bands with with my friends and started writing songs and things like that as well. So um, ended up getting some exposure to that as well. So those are the two things in, that have kind of defined my professional career uh, and what I spent a lot of time doing as a kid as well. So then landing in Stanford, you know, quite yeah. a different environment than, you know, Indiana. You know, definitely the innovation there is is happening. So how was that experience and the network that you build and 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 all of the above when it comes to innovation? Yeah, it was it was really different. I mean, I think when I visited Stanford for admitted students weekend back in two thousand six or whenever it was, um, that was the first time I'd been to California, I think. Um uh, and I remember I still remember it pretty well because in my head, I'd only ever seen like California in movies and you see Southern California in movies and it's always very warm and sunny. And then I went and the first day I was there it was April and it was raining. And I thought, oh, well, maybe that's a fluke or something. But then it turns out Northern California is actually kind of cold most of the year. So, but Stanford was great. I was there for four years, 2007 to 2011. Um, I started computer science. 
Um, honestly, that was a huge opportunity for me. It was something I was very lucky to be able to go there and just be surrounded by so many other really, really smart people. Um, the person who eventually became my co-founder at Heap, the company I founded in 2013, um, was a classmate of mine at Stanford. So really that network that I built there and that specific person, Mateen, who I met there, um, was kind of very pivotal to to the future of my life. But even despite, even even besides meeting my eventual co-founder there, um, met many of my lifelong friends there. A lot of the people who were in class with me or the year above me or the year below me went on to do really great things. I think the, the folks who founded uh, Snapchat were one year below me at, at Stanford. Tons of other tech startups, of course, came out of that crop of people I went to school with. So that was very cool to see. Um, it was 2007 through 2011. So it was just when the current kind of tech boom was taking off. Like there had been the dot-com bubble back in 2000, of course, but then that kind of crashed. Um, the year I declared to be a computer science major, 2007, I think I looked at this data at one point or I saw it somewhere. Um, that was the local minimum for computer science um, major declarations. I think there were something like 70 in my year. Um, I think now it's like hundreds, like several hundred people in every year. I think it's the most popular major at the school, but it certainly wasn't popular um, when I was a freshman and it was starting to pick up. I remember, you know, it was Facebook was like the really huge company that was like growing super fast. They had, they had, uh, they relocated their, their headquarters from Boston to Palo Alto and they were recruiting really heavily out of, out of Stanford. And, and, and so I knew people who were going there and stuff like that. Palantir was becoming really big as a company. They were recruiting a lot of people out of my graduating class and sort of the classes around me. So um, it was just getting to that point where you could graduate as a new grad um, studying computer science in 2010 or 2011 and get a starting salary of $80,000, which was an absolutely enormous amount of money um, compared to you know what most of us expected at the time. So it was it was pretty crazy to see that kind of like early beginnings of the current um, tech boom that's sort of been happening for the past decade and a half um, was kind of just getting started when I was at Stanford and something totally different than than what I had thought I was going to be getting into growing up. So it was really great. I'm, I'm very thankful for it. And in, in, in this case, I mean, rather than, you know, going with the whole, you know, getting a job or starting a company, you decide to go at it and tour as a musician. So, so that's quite a unique, uh, you know, path. So, so tell us about that. Yeah, it was, it was pretty different. So yeah, when, when, when 2011, my, my senior year of college, um, everyone was sort of applying for jobs and there were career fairs and all that kind of stuff. And I did a little bit of that, but um, I actually have made music my whole life. Um, and in college, I made um, electronic music and I would put it on the internet, on SoundCloud and YouTube and, uh, and, and things like that. And, and around like 2010, 2011, um, a lot of my music started getting a little bit popular on the internet, various you know, music blogs and stuff started picking it up and, and uh, you know, writing articles about it. And then people would contact me and say, hey, do you do, you do shows? Do you tour? Uh, and I was like, yeah, sure. So people started paying me to do shows. And then I was getting paid to do shows a little bit around my, like, a little bit before I graduated. And so I was like, well, instead of getting a job, maybe I should just keep doing this for a while. So um, I did that for almost two years after that. So 2011, 2012, um, I spent most of that time, um, you know, touring two, three days a week, playing shows um, in various sort of clubs and venues and things like that around America. Um, and that was a lot of fun. It was not what I had planned on. Um, even, even growing up, making music my whole life, there was never any point at which I thought I would do it professionally. Um, and even when I was doing it professionally, I never really thought it was going to be my, my long-term thing. Uh, and it turned out not to be my long-term thing. I, I think around 2012, after about a year, year and a half of doing it, I, I wasn't really all that excited about it. Um, I, I enjoy making music. I don't really enjoy touring. 
Um, it is, it can be lucrative, but you have to get really, really big before you, you start making a lot of money doing it. So it wasn't necessarily something where I thought this was like a great long-term career, um, unless I got really lucky or something like that. And I didn't necessarily want to do that. So, um, I, I started hacking around on startup ideas. You know, when you're playing two or three shows a week, you actually have a lot of free time. And in that free time, I think most people would have been making more songs or something like that, which I did a little bit of, but I spent actually a lot of that time, um, just, you know, working on side projects and things like that with, with friends of mine. Um, and, uh, Mateen, the person I ended up co-founding Keep with, he was someone I spent some time in 2012, like hacking on various unrelated side projects with. And then when he eventually started Keep as a company and, and then approached me to work on it with him, that sort of made natural sense. And then that's kind of when I decided to say, oh, okay, this is maybe a, a more interesting opportunity than continue to make music full time. So transitioned into, into starting the company. So tell us that moment where you received the phone call. What happened yeah. in that phone yeah, I, I remember pretty well. So Mateen um, had been working on Heap. So Heap is basically a, an analytics tool that it's like a client-side web analytics, mobile analytics tool that sort of tracks user behavior. So you can sort of get a sense of what are people doing on your website? What are they doing on your app? And the key thing Heap does a little bit differently is it sort of automatically tracks data that in other tools, you have to put a lot of manual work into, into tracking. And so Mateen had that idea in sort of late 2012. He started working on it. He actually asked me to work on it with him once. And then I said, no, that sounds like a lot of work. Um, I'm, I'm doing this music thing. Uh, and so I, I didn't really, I wanted to work on fun side projects. I didn't really want to work on anything super uh, like intensive at the time, at least. Um, and so he started working on it a little bit uh, himself. I think he worked with, with a mutual friend of ours from college actually for a few months uh, on it for, for, uh, at first. But um, he kept sort of like pestering me to say like, hey, you know, this is really interesting. You should, you should consider taking a look at it. And I really did find the idea very interesting. Um, one of the few internships I had done in college, um, I went and uh, worked at some startup that went defunct later um, as an intern. And at that startup, what I did for like half the summer was write analytics tracking code in a tool called Omniture, which is now called Adobe Analytics. Um, and so I spent, I, and I remember thinking Mateen's idea for, for Heap, I was like, that would have automated basically what I spent half my summer doing. And I was like, that seems pretty valuable. If you can automate like half a summer of, uh, uh, you know, a few months of work, of engineering work and sort of abstract that away so you can concentrate on more interesting, higher level stuff, that sounds like it could be pretty valuable. So the idea made sense to me. Mateen kept pitching me on it. Um, at some point, I thought, you know, this, this maybe, maybe this makes sense. Maybe I should do it full time. And so um, I, I joined Mateen and started working on it together with him. Um, we did Y Combinator, um, which is like Startup Accelerator. Um, and then going through that is where we got a lot of our initial customers and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that really set us up well to eventually raise some money, get some traction, all that kind of stuff. So um, it wasn't like there was one moment where I said, this is something I definitely need to do. It was more just like a couple months of being convinced that this was the right sort of uh, opportunity. And I'm really glad I, I did eventually say yes to Mateen and, and work on it with him. So finding product market fit. How was that a moment where you guys are, wow, I think that we're, we're into something here. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, it took a while. Uh, I would say like the core idea of Heap never changed. It was the same core idea on day one as it is today. Um, you go to the Heap website today, you sign up for it 10 years later. Um, it's the same core product that it was on day one, yet it still took us a good year, year and a half of work to really find product market fit. Because even though the idea was very resonant with people, the actual execution of it and making it actually work for people took a long time. And what I mean by that is, so... The way Heap works is you install a JavaScript snippet on your website or a library into your mobile app and will automatically track user behavior. So every time they click on something on a website or every page they visit or something like that, we're, we're capturing that user behavior so you can analyze it later on as a, some, as a person who 
is sort of developing the website. Um, and so that was the core idea from day one. Um, but it took us a while to, to figure out that you can't just capture all this raw data and present it to someone and say, here you go. You have to actually present it in a way that's accessible for that person. Um, and so what I mean by that is if I tell you someone clicked on this button 100 times, um, then the button, you know, the way we've identified it in, in our tracking code is uh, in, in sort of the tracked data is like someone clicked on a element on the page called a button, which has a certain CSS selector um, 100 times. And that's not that useful to you. What you really want is semantic information. Someone clicked on the sign up button or something like that. So we had to give them a system to take the raw data that, that Heap was tracking and correlate it with the actual semantic you know, business relevant names they might have for the actions someone takes. And that system for correlating the sort of raw data with like those names, um, that was a fairly complicated thing to do in Heap. And so while the product theoretically sounded really good, people would use it and find it really complicated and hard to use. And so we didn't really have great customer attention. People would sign up for it, try it out, and then churn pretty much immediately. Uh, and then so we eventually built this sort of visual tagging system where you don't even have to think about what the raw data is underneath. What you can do is you can just go to, the, go to your website, load Heap onto it, um, and then like, basically we have this thing called like a, 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 a visual definition system where you can basically click on the things yourself that your users would click on, on your website or in your mobile app, uh, and then label them yourself in line and sort of tell the, Hey, this is my sign up button. This is my homepage. This is my shopping cart button or whatever. Um, and, and through that, the data, then you, then you have, then you see in heap becomes a lot more semantically meaningful. You can start to build interesting charts and graphs and stuff out of it. Um, it took us about a year and a half to get that insight. That was what we needed to have in the product. Uh, and then we finally built it. And then we shipped that. That, that feature, that sort of visual tagging layer, um, didn't exist until about February 2014. And we started the company, or my team started in late 2012. I started working on it in January 2013. So it was almost a year, year and a half after the company started that we actually built that feature that in retrospect, we would have just built on day one if we had known. Um, and it, was, it wasn't just that feature. There was a few other things that we had to get right. There was a lot of like polish in the product that we had to do over time. Um, we also had to sort of, it's an analytics product. And so we would have this problem for a long time where um, once you hit a certain level of scale, it would become very slow. So we had to make the infrastructure better. But once we kind of had all those pieces in place in like, you know, early to mid 2014, that's the point at which people didn't just try it out. They would try it out, find value in it and stick around as long-term customers. And then that's when we first started getting recurring revenue that actually stuck around. That's when we started getting our first sort of annual contracts, our first sort of enterprise customers. All of that happened over the next year after some of those features were in place. But it took us a while to really iterate towards that. And and how was the process too of, of raising money? Because obviously this was your first company. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that it was not an easy process. Yeah, it was it was uh it was difficult. Um I I think like we we we've gotten we got pretty lucky with fundraising at Heap and I think one thing that we did really well was um after our seed round at least we were we never put ourselves in a position where we had to raise money. So we always had the option of not raising money, being cash flow positive, things like that if we really needed to be. So um our first I mean Heap did Y Combinator, so you know Y Combinator gives you uh, at the time I think it was $100,000. I think now they give you more. Um, that was that was a good amount of initial capital for at least me and Mateen um, to be able to like you know do some basic you know buy some servers or buy a little bit of AWS pay for AWS a little bit pay for some software all that kind of stuff we couldn't really hire anyone on hundred thousand dollars of total funding so we had to raise a seed round um, what we ended up doing is after Y Combinator was over after demo day um, we ended up you know raising a two million dollar seed round it took us a while it took us about I think something like eighty different meetings with 
VCs and angels to put together that seed round. But um, it was relatively straightforward. It was it was about five six weeks of of meetings with people, meeting with people constantly to sort of put that round together. Um, you know, fifty k, hundred k at a time. Um, but overall, I think it was considered a pretty good seed round at the time. Uh, even today, two million dollars is a pretty good seed round. So that that round was not that difficult to do. I think the future rounds were much more difficult. So our Series A round was almost three years later in 2016, early 2016. Uh, that was $11 million led by NEA. But it took us a long time to put together that round. We probably spent almost six months fundraising. Um, and we got no's from almost everyone we spoke to. We only got one term sheet, which was from NEA. Um, and everyone else that we talked to turned us down or, or wasn't interested. Um, this is despite the fact that we had about $2 million in ARR at the time. We were growing pretty quickly. Um, we grew two to six million in the, in the year after that, so we had pretty strong growth for a SaaS company. And we were close; we were basically cash flow positive, so we didn't necessarily. Um, we were really efficient as a company, and so two million ARR, cash flow positive with strong growth. Today, that would be kind of a slam dunk round with like a. a, a it would be that that wouldn't be a terribly difficult round to do at the time. It was difficult, um, but we did get it done. We got done a forty million dollar valuation. Um, and, and really, I think the reason we eventually did get it done is because, because by virtue of being cash flow positive, we didn't need the round to get done. We could sort of, um, we had the luxury of being able to say no until like the time was right. And so the fact that everyone was not interested in the company was not existential to the company. And I think like what a lot of founders do is they assume that if they hit a certain milestone, oh, if I get to a million in ARR or 2 million in ARR, I'm definitely gonna be able to raise the next round. And a lot of people think it's a guarantee. Um, maybe it was for 18 months in 2020, 2021, when capital was was uh, everywhere. But for the most part, there's no guarantees in fundraising. Um, the sort of best advice, I think, is to just always run the company as if you'll never be able to raise again. And that way, if you do, need to, if you do decide to go fundraise, you never need to fundraise. You can just sort of um, allow like the market to work itself out. And if you get good terms, then great, you can take them. And if you don't get the terms you like, then you can just say no and, and keep sort of operating as a business. And so that's more or less what we did with our Series A, that's what we did with our Series B, with our Series C. In every round, they were all difficult rounds, but none of them were rounds that were like necessary to the survival of the business. And that allowed us to sort of um, survive despite maybe not having the rounds come together as fast or as cleanly as we'd like them to. So that's that kind of how the Series A went. Um, but yeah, that was kind of like uh, roughly what fundraising looked like at, at Heap. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, 
or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And now the company, you know, obviously now you're, you've started your own and, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit, but the company, you know, has done incredible. I mean, has raised over 200 million, hundreds of employees. I mean, with a company that was succeeding like that, like literally, literally like a rocket ship, why, why were you exploring other options? Why do you decide, you know, it's time to turn page and, and do another company? That's a really good question. Yeah. So I left Heap in 2020, uh, in July of, of that year, um, and started a new company called Airplane, which is what I'm working on now. Uh, and Heap has done phenomenally since then. Um, it, was a, it was a good company, and it was about 200 people when I left. It's about 400 and something people today. I think the revenue has much more than doubled. So it's not only increased headcount, but it's also continued to grow really fast as a company itself. Um, the, the reason I decided to leave was, was honestly, I like building things from the ground up. Um, you know, when we were starting Heap, uh, neither Mateen nor I really knew anything about running or starting a company. We knew nothing about finding product market fit, about hiring people, about any of these things. Um, and so that process of learning was just constant. You know, every month, every quarter, every year, there was some new challenge to deal with. And so it was just a constant process of solving new problems and um, really just learning so much from that process. Um, and then also that early first few years of figuring out, okay, we have this cool idea, but how does that idea need to manifest in a way that people can actually adopt? How does that idea manifest in a way that's differentiated from what our competitors are doing? Um, how do we solve various product challenges? Who is this product even for? Is it for product managers, is it for marketers, is it for engineers? So all these like really tough questions were what we spent the first several years of heap grappling with. But at some point, the company got to the stage where it was very clear what our product market fit was. It was very clear what we were selling and who we were selling it to. We had a product roadmap, but it was very clear how to execute against that product roadmap. And the challenges of the company transitioned from being these sort of like figure it out zero to one type challenges to being more um, scaling challenges, challenges where um, we have a huge organization and we have to keep everyone on the same page. We have to make sure sales and marketing and product and customer success all are marching in the same direction and are all understanding of the same mission and vision of the company. Um, we have to make sure that um, the handoffs between various teams are, are working really smoothly. We have to make sure that our recruiting processes work really well. So these are exciting challenges. They're just not challenges that I personally found as exciting as the challenges of figuring out the product market fit of the company, the go-to-market model of the company, all that foundational stuff. And so around 2019, a year before I left, um, that's kind of when I was feeling like, you know, I'm running sales and marketing and customer success and all this stuff. I have 100 plus people reporting to me directly or indirectly. Um, this uh, feels like, um, you know, I'm a first time founder. My previous job was touring musician. I don't really know what I'm doing. I, there are people out there who are much, much better at scaling than I am. And so we decided to go hire a COO. We brought in a COO named Ken Fine. Um, who joined the company in mid-2019. Um, and immediately, once he joined, maybe two to three months after he joined, the company, the sort of go-to-market team operating cadence, the maturity, the rigor, the predictability of it just went up because he was he had just seen this before. 
Um, and he had so much more precision in terms of like how that go-to-market team should run at scale. Um, and so having seeing him operate so effectively um, led me to realize like what I was really good at was that like early building and all that kind of stuff. And so I thought, you know, I'll spend a few months making sure Ken is fully transitioned in um, and that he's doing a great job. Um, and that's what I did. And then once, uh, you know, once I felt like he was operating on all cylinders and I wasn't needed anymore, I decided to leave. Um, I stayed a little bit longer um, because around the time I was planning to leave, COVID ended up um, hitting and that sort of pandemic led to a big shutdown. And at first, it wasn't clear what that was going to mean for tech companies. And so I remember Q2 2020 was was a really tough quarter for obviously everyone in every industry, but um, our sales pipeline basically dried up overnight. So I did stick around for another two quarters after that, um, just to make sure there weren't any ill effects on the company. Um, what actually ended up happening was there was a huge COVID pull forward and SaaS companies like Heap actually ended up having like record uh, profits and things like that later in the year and, and the next year. So once it was kind of clear that the, comp the, the business was going to survive, it was going to be stable um, and, and all that kind of stuff, I decided to just finally leave in July of 2020. So um, that's when I finally left Heap. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that decision because what I did next was, was work on Airplane, which is the company I'm working on now. And I'm very happy to be back in this sort of early stage, building from the ground up, uh, making something new. So, And why, why Airplane? Why was the uh, problem meaningful enough for you to... To leave such an incredible, you know, um, chapter, you know, for for this new one. Yeah, it's a really good question. Yeah, so um, basically, the, what what Airplane is is we're a developer platform for building internal tools. And so what I mean by that is, um, you know, let's say you're an engineer at a company like Netflix, to use an example. That's not one of our customers, but I think it's just a brand everybody knows. So it's a good example. Um, you know, part of what you end up doing on the engineering team at Netflix is you build. The app that everybody logs into on their phone, on their browser, on their TV, whatever, to watch movies and whatnot. Um, but a lot of what you have to do is build internal tools as well. So, for example, you know, there's a, a a team of people who do things like content moderation. There's different shows and movies and all that uploaded every every five minutes to Netflix, and someone needs to build a, a repository internally to sort of like house all that content and let people sort of like annotate it and and things like that. And so, there's a, a huge team of people internally. Who, who do all that stuff and they need tools, like they need interfaces, UIs and stuff to read and write against that data and do what they need to. There's probably another team internally needs to do billing. You know, let's say you get overcharged for your Netflix subscription one month or you need to cancel your subscription or something like that. So you call up Netflix customer support and say, I'd like to report an issue with my billing. Someone on the other end of that line has to be able to look at your account. They have to be able to see your billing status, you know, issue a refund if they need to, you know, uh, upgrade your account to a different tier if they need to. There's all these kinds of internal tools that need to be built to sort of like read and write against customer data, against billing data, against content data, all that kind of stuff. And every company has this. I mentioned Netflix, but your bank has this, your um, Uber has this, your SaaS companies and things like that have this. They just have a plethora of internal software that needs to get written. And all this internal software is specific to the business. Um, every business has its own flavor of things that it's doing, but there's a very common patterns across all of them. So the internal tools that Netflix are building versus the internal tools that Uber is building versus the internal tools that Facebook is building um, all have in common a variety of features that they need to be permissioned, audit logged, all that kind of stuff. And so the idea of an airplane is we give you a framework to basically build those kinds of tools a lot more quickly. It's about you know 30 to 50% of all engineering work goes into internal tooling. We try to accelerate that as much as possible so that engineering teams can focus on the core. And the reason why this problem in specific um, resonated with me is because it was a huge problem at Heap. So, you know, Heap is a SaaS company. We sell enterprise software to businesses. Um, and, and as a part of doing that, there's always times where 
customers would have needs that were not addressed by the product directly, but we still needed to support. Um, and we need to build internal tools for those needs. So for example, a customer might be migrating over to Heap from another analytics system, and they might want to bring in their historical data and import that into Heap. Or they might want to um, you know, split up their Heap data into two different accounts or something like that. Or maybe they need to um, promote someone on their team to an admin role, and they're not sure how to do that in the product. And in all these instances, our support engineering or our solutions engineering team would get these requests and get these queries, and usually they'd have to escalate them to the engineering team, and then our engineering team would get involved, and they'd have to like run some script or run some query against the production database to fix this issue for the customer on a one-off basis. And over time, as we scaled, these kind of one-off customer requests ended up, became a ended up becoming a huge bottleneck for our engineering team. And so our engineering team was spending a lot of time solving one-off customer problems instead of building product features, which was a huge drain on the engine team productivity. Um, and we also spent time like building internal tools to sort of address these things in a more systematic way. But that was time that could have been spent advancing our product roadmap. Uh, and so I kind of just saw this over and over and over again at Heap. Um, and then when I left Heap in charge of brainstorming new ideas, I thought, you know, there's probably a lot of things on the internal tooling side that we could build a framework for that would sort of automate a lot of that boilerplate and a lot of that repetitive work. Um, and then I was kind of brainstorming that was talking to a friend of mine named Josh, who was previously CTO of a company called Benchling, which is like a life sciences SaaS company um, that's also done quite well. Um, and he was saying that Benchling had the same set of problems over there. Uh, and so um, Benchling is also an enterprise software company. They also have tons of customers make one-off requests. And they also have tons of scripts and queries and things like that internally that people sort of have built to uh, address those problems. And so Josh and I were kind of brainstorming. We thought, hey, we could sort of provide a framework that takes care of the UI, the permissioning, notifications, all these kinds of like aspects of these internal tools that are kind of common across companies. Um, and probably Heap, probably Benchling would get a lot of value out of it. Uh, and we spent some time in sort of late 2020 interviewing friends of ours who work at other companies and just developed a sense that this wasn't a problem just unique to Heap and unique to Benchling. It was a problem that was existed in almost every company. Um, and so that kind of gave us conviction that we could sort of build something quite valuable in this space. Um, and so I was uh, excited to kind of tackle it as a result. Um, we ended up starting to build a prototype and write code and build an MVP of the product in December of 2020 or so. Um, raised uh, uh, an initial round of funding a little bit after that um, and have kind of been working on it ever since. And in terms of, um, you know, location here, because a lot of founders, you know, they're always, you know, wondering where should they start their business. Heap, you did it in the Bay Area. So the, um, the HQ is in San Francisco, but... With the airplane, you guys took a different route and you're in New York. So why? Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, airplane's actually distributed. Um, we don't have any sort of single location where everybody's located. I, I live in New York, uh, as you mentioned. My co-founder, Josh, lives in San Francisco. Um, we have employees in both cities. And then we also have employees in a number of other cities uh, across the globe. Um, and so... Uh, Part of the reason we did that is because we started the company in December 2020. It was still the peak of the pandemic. Um, no one was vaccinated yet because the vaccines weren't really rolled out yet. Uh, and so just by necessity, we were fully remote from day one. Um, and because we kind of developed those norms around being fully remote from day one, back when it became possible to go back into the office, we didn't necessitate that anyone has to go back into the office. Um, and so we have a collection of people in San Francisco and New York. So we do have two small offices in both cities, but they're not requirements to have to go in. Uh, and we have remote employees too uh, in, in a variety of other studies across the world. Um, and so 
it, it was more of a, you know, day one, we did discuss that a little bit. Josh and I discussed, you know, hey, if we, um, you know, when it's possible to go back into the office, do we want to enforce something like that? Um, and I think we debated a little bit, but ultimately we felt that we were quite productive being fully remote. Both of us are sort of experienced um, uh, second time founders and and had sort of like experienced managing teams and setting goals and, 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 and things like that. And so I, I am a believer that like, you know, if you do an effective job of setting goals and setting requirements and um, saying this is what's expected of, of someone as an employee, they don't have to be in the office to be productive. There are a few things that sort of are done better in person. You know, there are certain types of collaboration or discussions that are higher fidelity when they're done in person. Um, but you can sort of solve that by getting the team together for like a, a, a company offsite or something like that on a periodic basis. Um, a lot of work is individual. You know, if you're writing code, you can sort of do that in your own home, you can do that in office with other people. I don't think it makes a huge difference. If you're on a call with a customer and you're doing sales calls, whether you're doing that from your own home or whether you're doing that in a meeting room at an office, I, I also don't think it makes a huge difference. So, you know, I do think 70, 80, 90% of the time you spend on a day-to-day -day basis is doing things that don't necessarily need to be done in person. Um, and so for that reason, we wanted to be flexible and be able to tap into a global talent pool of people and be able to hire from anywhere. Um, so that was kind of the decision making there. Also, Heap, my previous company, it was based in the Bay Area. We did have an office and we had a culture where we went in to the office most days. Um, but even there, we had a, a fair amount of people who were remote. So our engineering team at Heap, even before the pandemic, about one third of that team was remote. We had people in Europe and uh, uh, in India and in Japan and Australia and uh, a number of countries and, and, and all that across the globe. Uh, and we had done that from early on just because it had always been hard to hire. It was always a very competitive hiring market. And Heap was not some you know, super uh, famous company um, that, that, that had an easy time hiring people. And so we would just hire, if we found someone qualified and talented, we would hire them regardless of whether they were uh, located. And so I had, a, I had had a lot of experience kind of working on a partially remote team already before at Heap, um, uh, given that about a third of the team was distributed across the globe. Um, and so that experience led me to to sort of say with with airplane let's let's go even further in that direction and, and embrace this sort of remote um, distributed team thing even more. And now you know it's a, it's incredible because you guys got started in 2021 and literally in 2021 you raise your Series A. I mean typically you would do more like nowadays people are doing like pre seed seed then yeah. you know a Series A. But in your guys' case you did a Series A in 2021 in December and then you did a Series B in 2022, in September. And literally, you guys have been able to raise money from like the who is who. I mean, you have there Thrive Capital uh, and then also a bunch of other people like Benchmark or Silicon Valley Angel and the who is who when it comes to angel investors. So yeah. how would, would you say that perhaps, you know, it, it got a little bit easier as second time founders to, 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 to raise money? Definitely. I think, you know, we were, we've been very fortunate with our A round and our B round from, from Benchmark and Thrive, respectively, to be able to raise from like really high quality VCs and really high quality firms at, at great valuations and things like that. I think a lot of that is due to, as you mentioned, we're second time founders. I think people give you a little bit more credit there. They know that you have some experience um, scaling companies and finding product market fit and hiring great people and all that. So I think you definitely get a bit more credit as a second time founder. And I wouldn't necessarily say that what we've been able to do with, with Airplane is going to be something that every founder can replicate. Um, 
uh, that being said, I think, um, you know, some of the reasons that we were able to raise so much was because we're second half founders. Other reasons were just because of that, the traction of the product early and things like that. You know, when, when Thrive um, led the round, um, they not only, you know, thought it was great that we're second time founders, but um, they also talked to a lot of our early customers. They got a little, a lot of those proof points about the kind of value that we were adding to a lot of these companies. And so um, things like the just general NPS of the product, the net retention of the product, um, the value, the, dif- the differentiated value it's been adding to our customers, I think was a, a driver as well in sort of being able to um, raise a good valuations and, and good rounds and things like that. Now, in terms of uh, vision, you know, because I'm sure that you had to sell those investors on a vision. If you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of airplane is fully realized, what does that world look like? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, ultimately, if I zoom way out, the whole point of engine of the whole point of airplane is to make engineers more productive. Um, and so if I think about my time at Heap, the reason we built airplane is because this lack of good internal tooling and this like constant time of engineers spending time solving one-off customer issues was a huge drag on the overall productivity of the engineering team. Um, if I could have sort of waved a magic wand and had 99% of the effort of the engineering team go towards advancing the product roadmap, um, rather than doing these one-off things, um, rather than doing these, these um, interrupts and stuff like that, we probably would have been able to achieve the vision of heat a lot more quickly. Um, and I think that's true of almost every company. There's, there's studies out there that show 25, 30, 50% of engineering time is spent on internal tooling. And that ratio grows as a company grows because the surface area for the amount of tooling that's needed and the complexity grows um, faster than the company grows. Um, And so as a result, you have like really great companies that are just spending all their time um, fighting these internal fires instead of advancing their own vision. And so if I wake up in a world tomorrow where Airplane has achieved its vision, it's a world where engineering teams, software teams in general are able to just move at the speed of their roadmap. They're able to move as fast as they want to move on innovating and moving their own vision forward um, rather than sort of being held back by sort of internal bottlenecks and and things like that. Um, And so if we need an interface internally at at a company that someone needs to be able to use to read and write against customer data or something like that, it should be possible to build that and solve that problem very, very fast so you can get back to the main stuff that you want to do, which is sort of like pushing product forward. Um, And so... That's kind of the high-level thing that Airplane's really trying to solve. Um, I do believe that software engineering in general is the main engine of innovation in the world. Um, over the last 10 years, there's been, you know, the, the majority of value created in tech has been created by software. Um, now, the, with the AI wave that's been happening, it's a very software-driven wave of innovation. Um, I do think it's the greatest sort of engine for innovation in the world. Um, and Airplane, if it achieves its mission, is it, the mission is to make that engine of innovation even more productive in a general sense. So that's really what we're trying to do if I, if I zoom way, way out. So now let's say, let's, let's zoom way, way in, you know, when it comes to, uh, to putting you into a time machine and bring you sure. back in time. You know, let's say we bring you back in time, you know, to that moment that you were receiving that phone call uh, to really get going with Heap. And you have the opportunity of sitting your younger self for a quick chat. And on that chat, you're able to give your younger self, one piece of advice before launching a business? What would that be and why, given what you know now? Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, honestly, I think the number one piece of business advice I'd probably give my, my younger self is just spend more time listening to users. I think, you know, when we spoke earlier on this, uh, in our conversation, we talked about finding product market fit at Heap, and it took us about a year 
year and a half to really get there. And there were certain insights that it took us a long time to unlock. And those insights would have come a lot faster if we had just spent even more time with our users. Um, we spent a little bit too much time writing code and trying to guess what the market needed rather than just asking people, you know, why didn't you get up and running with Heat? What was the, what fell short about it? We did a little bit of that, but we could have done a lot more of that. And even as we scaled and grew, we still didn't learn that lesson. We, we spent a lot of time and years at the company building things that were not exactly what the market needed, trying out strategies that were never going to work. And we could have validated a lot faster if we had just spent more time talking to our users, understanding them better, understanding their pain points more specifically, um, and really getting at the core of why they did or didn't like our product. Um, and so it's something that honestly was a painful lesson that we had to learn over and over and over again. Um, there's never any substitute for just getting direct feedback from your customers, from your users about your product. Um, and honestly, Heap would probably be you know, twice as big, three times as big today, and just a lot further along if we could have cut out a lot of that early time that, that we sort of spent doing the wrong things. Um, and at, at, at Airplane, we've tried to put that into practice better. We, I've tried to spend more time just like getting at the core heart of what it is our product does or doesn't do for our customers and, and really listening to them. But even that's hard. You, it's, it's always easy to get into a room and brainstorm things and whiteboard things and convince yourself certain ideas are good. Um, uh, you know, there's no shortage of good ideas out there. But it's hard to sort of do that work of then talking to 20 people and saying, is this actually a good idea and things like that. So um, that's probably the number one thing I'd say. Love it. So, Ravi, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? For sure. Um, you can just send me an email. I'm Ravi, R-A-V-I, at airplane.dev. Um, so, yeah, feel free to, to reach out anytime if you'd like to chat. Amazing. Well, Ravi, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much. It's been an honor being on today. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.